How's it going, guys? Very quick message, four-pronged, on behalf of the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Number one, first and foremost, we would absolutely love to see as many of you as possible at our national demonstration this Saturday, the 13th of January, at 1pm in Dublin, starting at the Garden of Remembrance and finishing up at the Department of Foreign Affairs. Let's make this demonstration the biggest one yet. Number two, and as you've probably seen, South Africa have taken out a case against Israel at the International Courts of Justice, the ICJ, requesting interim measures to prevent Israel from committing genocide. We call on the Irish government to support the South African application before the first hearing in The Hague this coming Thursday, the 11th of January. As a state signatory, Ireland has an obligation to uphold the Genocide Convention. We supported the case taken by Ukraine against the Russian Federation at the ICJ in 2022. What's the difference this time, except perhaps the colour of the victim's skin? Number three, we call for two pieces of legislation. A, the Occupied Territories Bill. This bill would ban the import of produce from illegal settlements in occupied territories anywhere in the world. The bill has already passed both houses of the Oireachtas, but is continually blocked by the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's party, Fine Gael, on a number of spurious pretexts. And B, the Illegal Israeli Settlements Divestment Bill would ensure that Irish strategic investment funds are not invested in companies that the UN have identified as complicit in illegal Israeli settlements. And number four, join the BDS campaign, boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel. Ireland played a leading role in the global campaign against racist South African apartheid. We can and must do so again. We did, after all, invent the boycott. The absolute horror in Gaza and the West Bank has gotten immeasurably worse. If you're sitting at home wondering what you can do to help, first things first is join us on Saturday for the march. Also, join your local solidarity campaign. They need you. And much more importantly, Palestine needs you now as never before. Gurmagwif. Hello everyone and welcome to PALCAST, a podcast brought to you by Just Word Educational and um, the Echo Chamber podcast in, in, in Dublin. We are very pleased to, put, to be joined by uh, Noor Jude, uh, our friend who's originally from Gaza, joining us uh, today from the United States. I'm also equally delighted to have uh, both Helena Coben, the president of Just Word Education, and uh, Tony Groves uh, of the Eco Chamber um, podcast. Today we will talk about um, Gaza and mapping our displacement and, and return. A lot of Palestinians today, 90% of Palestinians in Gaza uh, are displaced. And um, But before we, we start the, the conversation, I uh, would like to um, remind our listeners that it's uh, January 10, 8 p.m. here in Istanbul just to keep track of, of time and, and dates for, for people who will listen to us uh, later. Uh, I'm very delighted to, to have you, uh, Helena, Noor, and, and, and uh, of course, uh, Tony. Uh, just uh, let me um, introduce uh, Noor Jude quickly. Um, Dr. Noor Jude is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at UCLA uh, and a former president, Andrew W. Mellon, 
postdoctoral fellow in geography at uh, UC uh, Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Jude completed her PhD in geography at U uh, UCLA in 2022 and wrote her dissertation on mapping decolonized futures, indigenous regions from Hawaii and Palestine, um, on the efforts by Palestinian native Hawaiian communities to imagine and work toward liberated futures while centering indigenous duration as a nonlinear uh, temporality. Um, in fact, I met uh, Noor in Hawaii for the first time. She has family in my refugee camp in Nusayarat, uh, but as Palestinians, because of displacement that we relive today, uh, we met in Hawaii, uh, like very far from our home uh, in, in Palestine. Okay, thank you very much, Noor, for, for joining us today. I'm very uh, de delighted to, to have you. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Helena and Tony and uh, everyone involved uh, for having, uh, for putting this show on and for having such difficult conversations uh, during this moment. Um, thank you again. Uh, please allow me to start by asking about your family back home you know as palestinians from from gaza many of us live outside gaza in the diaspora and we worry about our families back home i have a family back home you do H how is the situation there with your family um you know it's uh various uh and spread and they are spread out so the experiences reflect that um as i'm sure you're aware um the most displacement uh sort of scenarios were for those um a few of the families from the larger family that uh, were living in Gaza City Tel El Hawa and so on and of course they uh went south very early on um the family in my in my case our family of sort of closest relation my mom's sisters um and my first cousins on my dad's side are in Rafah and Der El Balah um, respectively, so they have been, um, feel strange to use this word, they have been lucky enough to stay in their homes. Um, luck here obviously being very loosely used, of course. Um, we have lost, of course, uh, also a lot of extended family, as everyone in Gaza has, um, many friends. Uh, I don't think there is anyone, of course, in the Strip or who is tied uh, to the Strip in any way, that has been untouched by the loss of life. Um, but, um, you know, they are in the same boat as, as everyone else, even in, in the situation of being fortunate enough, some of them uh, fortunate enough to be not among the Nazahin or among the uh, literally immediately displaced. Um, and yet we are all displaced in, in some manner, right? Uh, everyone in Gaza is, is displaced in some manner, um, the even those in homes in Rafah are holding 30, 40, 50 people more um, than they typically would in those apartments, neighbors, friends, family from other areas um, that are staying with them. Um, and, you know, the situation with food has been um, incomparable to anything in sort of Palestinian collective memory. Uh, I have a father who is of the Nakba generation, which is not particularly common for, as you know, Yusuf, for, for folks our age. Um, but I was uh, the youngest kid. My father is 90 years old. He was 14 during the Nakba. And um, even he, uh, in all that he has seen in his life um, and witnessed, even in that initial rupture, 
no one can wrap their brain around this question that we are now dealing with uh, in regards to hunger uh, and starvation, uh, lack of resources. Uh, to this degree, has has really never been something that Palestinian community has dealt with, uh, and uh, and so that's of course very difficult for everyone. And I don't think any of us will have really processed uh, the details of this for for a very long time um and that's saying a lot given that you and i are are not even physically on the ground obviously speaking of of your dad um i remember i mentioned ahmed al-hajj to you and i found out that your dad and ahmed al-hajj who's also 90 year old palestinian refugee in gaza i hope he survived the bombing i i was not able to speak to him i tried many times Helena too met Ahmed Al-Hajj in Gaza. Uh, he's from Sawafir. And, you know, speaking of the experience of displacement and return and mapping our return and now displacement, how, how do you see, you know, these dynamics play out when we talk about return and now displacement? It's like ongoing displacement, ongoing Nakba, but also ongoing aspiration to go back home and return in light of what's happening today in Gaza, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think this has been one of the most difficult things to see, right? Of course, in in addition to the the, the deepest pain of of such massive and significant loss of life, um, it is the homelessness that's been created, right? At no point, as I mentioned, I think in the history of of Gaza or Palestine in general since 1948, excuse me, um, have so many people been displaced and put in a situation where there are it's not just a, a question of uh, being in a new place, but where there are no buildings left to go back to. I mean, I think the scarier question sort of uh, that, that those of us who are living with this at, in every hour um, don't really admit even to ourselves is in the moments of quiet, in the moments where you just kind of stop and really think about the potential of the day after, even that is just so heavy on your chest, you know, in, in Arabic we say like, it's just constantly something heavy on your chest, this idea of even if tomorrow there is a ceasefire, which obviously, inshallah, that is the situation, that's all, what that's what everyone is rooting for, an immediate ceasefire, but even in that scenario, what the day after looks like is still just soul-crushing. Um, Noor, I mean, I'm so yeah. glad to have you on the podcast because what you're saying is really representing, you know, what so many people in Gaza and people from Gaza are thinking right now. I'm just remembering like the last little video that Rifat Al-Arir put on to, um, I think it was Instagram, where he had taken his video camera and was looking at the ruins of his house. Mm-hmm there in Shaja'iya or, or was it one of the other houses that he'd been in? But what you say about there not being a home to go back to is mm. just terrifying. You know, I live here in Washington, D.C. We have a lot of homeless people and we feel like really bad for them, do what we can for them. But you're talking about like the vast majority of the people in Gaza, I think they say like 1.8 million people are homeless. Yes, and in some capacity. Currently, yes. I mean, permanently homeless, I think the number is, is less than that because there are homes still standing that folks have evacuated from. But yes, it's, a, it's an incredible number. I mean, it's a majority of the Strip, certainly. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, the, to the, to the point that sort of Yusuf was alluding to by, by referencing this, um, uh, Ahmed Hajj, this other Nakba survivor who, who he knows from home, um, you know, many of these individuals, uh, you know, my father is not in Gaza. I, I understand very deeply the, even with having as much family as I do in Gaza, the privilege that, um, you know, my parents and my immediate siblings are not there. And, uh, you know, I have so many friends and family here whose parents and siblings are there. And that experience, the experience has been obviously significantly different for them, um, even more painful. And there are levels of this. And I think that's part of what is, what's so difficult even amongst ourselves is that the, we're at a point where um, heartbreak even is relative and pain is relative and everything is, it's just layers on layers of, of, of um, trying to navigate loss. But many of these individuals have been made refugees more than once, right? Once again, two or three generations later after their elders had managed to build a life outside of the camps. And this is also a level of this, you know, um, Jihad Abu Salim and I did a, a teach-in on geography of Gaza and we um, similarly sort of had a conversation about displacement and about the history of the geography of Gaza and the camps. You know, there are these eight refugee camps in Gaza um, that are established in the early 50s. But the other part of this that we don't really talk about often is that families that were initially in these camps spent decades, right, working to get out of these camps. And not everyone does, certainly, but many, many do. Much of Gaza City is populated by people who are not from Gaza, you know, like my family, from Isdud, are from neighboring villages, and, you know, managed to get educations, build a life, save money, build homes outside the camp. And, um, and those homes are gone now. And, um, you know, as much as we believe in our core, you know, the most important thing is to survive this and we can rebuild Gaza and we will rebuild Gaza. Um, at the same time, that's not a, that's not a straight line. That's not point A to point B, you know, rebuilding for these families is their life savings. Um, and so that's, it's also incredibly crushing. I think we're all reminded of, uh, of Mahmoud Darwish. He has a very famous, uh, one of his most famous pieces is called A House Murdered. And he says in it, right, a house murdered is also mass murder. And a house emptied is also emptied of its people and of its things. And while our things are not buried with us, um, they are taken and they are, are killed in, in similar fashion. And, um, and I think that those are, are very real losses, even for, for the folks that are going to manage to survive this, inshallah. I, I just want to make a quick point just on, on the, on the loss of home. Obviously, we hope to speak to later on this week, the, the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing, um, who we will speak to. We've, we're going to have him on the podcast and he's, he's, keeps pushing the, the, this idea that also, it's not an idea, it's the truth. Domicide is a, is an international war crime there. And this is domicide is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And, um, you guys wouldn't be aware, but there's a, there's an anti-apartheid, um, Hero in Ireland who has campaigned for in, for for the people in Gaza, the people of Palestine, born in the Nakba, born uh, dispossessed, whose home was destroyed in November. Uh, Assad Abu Shark, who uh, who who we've spoken to and will be at the the podcast for Palestine event that we're doing. 
and they but like you know as you said this is a an elderly elderly gentleman who was devastated to find out in november that the house that they used to raise his family now he's in dublin the house was taken away and um you know i'm privileged to know him and talk to him but just when i think about the loss that he had that day um we it's it's in i know there's a lot there's war crimes happening but i can i can tell you that the house was so much more than bricks and mortar um, yeah, and- you know, I had a friend here in Washington, D.C., who had a little Volkswagen, Palestinian friend, and he was from Bethlehem in the West Bank. It's always important to remember that some of this stuff happens in the West Bank, too. And and he used to drive around in his Volkswagen and the the trunk, I guess in the Volkswagen, the trunk is in, in the front of the car, Um it was full of boxes of his family photos because he was the one person in the family who had kept all the family photos from like decades, decades past. And he, he was kind of not entirely um, well housed himself. So he just kept them in his car. But you think, as Tony said, you know, you destroy a house, you're destroying all the treasured possessions that the family had in that house all the memories of the life. So I, th- I think this concept of domicide is something that, you know, is going to be really important to talk about when we have uh, Raj, yes. whatever his name is, come. Yes, absolutely. And just another example of how ahead of his time Darwish was quoting international law without knowing it. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think also one of the, one of the questions you know, that come into this point of of displacement. And if we look at a place like Rafah now, Rafah, typically residents uh, are less than 400,000, 325, 350,000 people in Rafah. Uh, you're looking at over 1 million now. Yusuf, you, you might have a more accurate number. I think it's 1.2 million, 1.1 million is something close to this in Rafah now. Rafah is a very small space. Um and even prior to the 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 push of the middle area that's been happening over the last several weeks, um, Rafah was already overloaded um, with displaced. And the the fact that we're talking about Rafah specifically is also not a matter of coincidence, right? Rafah being the last um, sort of markation prior before the border with Egypt is that this is this is a a series and gradation of of pushing towards Sinai. Um, and this has been 75 years in the works. Um, that was all, you know, that was the plan from day one. And, you know, this this war and the last 75 years, the last hundred years, have been a series of of moves towards ethnic cleansing and towards genocide. Um, these are uh always sort of processes that are ongoing, um, structures put in place to never end, right? P- um, structures that are put in place to outlast the population that it is uh, trying to remove. And um, the, in- you know, the increase that we see now in Rafah, not only of population, is also a, a um, signal and representation of the desperation inside Gaza. Um, the increasing desire to to leave because th- there is sort of no home to go back to, or th- or there is a sense that 
everyone has this sort of internal clock that time is running out, that that's it. It's just a matter of time before, you know, the next bomb, the next bullet hits me. Um, and, uh, and, and you can't, you know, you can't fault people for that, um, because, everyone is is simply doing their best uh, i think for unfortunately some folks who are far away and outside there tends to be a lot of high politics uh, philosophizing as we say in arabic falsafa um and yet it for me it's the most infuriating thing to kind of be around um because it's it's a lot of nonsense it's a lot of sort of you know talk um about uh, state powers and and causes and and principles to stick to and so on and and all of that is incredibly important for those of us organizing for those of us pushing governments and 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 details of ceasefires and so on but for people on the ground who are trying to get to be breathing the next day um the ability that any or the the idea that anyone would dare to, to pass judgment on however they've chosen to to see see fit to 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 survive to the next day um is you know un, unacceptable to say the least do you have um any particular hopes nor in the uh, court case that's at the world court the international Court of Justice, oh. um, to do with obviously South Africa's amazing case against. When I say amazing, it's it's really well put together. The case they have put mm-hmm. together against Israel that is going to be heard, I think, on Thursday and Friday of this week. Do you have any particular hopes? I mean, I think my hope is I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a law scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I could not get into sort of the details of that with you. I have. Um, read much of it and and I am equally impressed um the amount of also signatories that are now signing on is is wonderful um you know i m- my hope is to be surprised because I do not have an expectation unfortunately um my hope is to be surprised by the court my hope is to be surprised by those um in power sort of in power in the court we don't talk about power in courts but certainly there is quite a bit of it um and i and i say that only in the sense not that i would be sh- shocked that someone should see the value in that case and the argument made in the case um but shock in the sense that they would acknowledge uh, that the court will acknowledge that they see uh the validity of the case Um I don't know. I if I'm being totally honest, I I really don't know what my hope is other than to be surprised that something comes of it at all. I think if if there is any sort of result or consequence of it, I will be happily surprised. Can I just make one quick point on on it and I promise it's just on that actual very thing you said you're not a human rights lawyer one of my good friends Maeve O'Rourke Dr. Maeve O'Rourke who is and she's amazing and she has made the case that that 
the courts, the the impetus on the the any output from the court may not necessarily change dynamics, but it will certainly change the geopolitics of this. Obviously, we're advocating for more countries to lend their their names to it, and I have heard, and this is disgracefully from the US, that they're you know they're saying, well, it's only you know being supported by Arab states was the phrase that's been used. I have noted with with some comfort that that, that Belgium and Spain in the last twenty four hours have you know shared uh, positive messages, if not signing to it, which is really important, and of course from an Irish perspective, we are pushing very hard for our government to to say that they will they they will support it as well. I do think it's it's it is a really crucial um, that 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 it has that it's even if there's even if it, there's nothing enforceable, it could it could mean da- damages economically, which is really something where where you start, unfortunately, where you can pull on the reins there. Mm. Sorry, Yusuf, um, I know you wanted to come in. Yeah. But- I, I just wanted to comment to uh, Tony, sorry, that uh, last, that's the first time I've ever heard that South Africa is re- referred to as an Arab country, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're happy to, we're happy to claim them, but I, but, but certainly they don't claim us in that sense. I mean, we love yeah. them, but, but, um, but no, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty funny. I thought, well, this is, you this know, is US media, you know? The relationship. <laughs> the uh, relationship Palestinians have with their homes. Uh, even in a refugee camp where I grew up in Nusayarat, um, it took us almost 60 years or 65 years to convince my aunt to demolish our house, which she grew up, uh, at which you know she grew up since the Nakba and build another house. Because you know our houses are not just houses. There is a saying, I think, from South Africa that says our houses are not houses. Our houses are human beings. Mm. And, you know, you we have all these memories, her life with her parents who survived Nakba. She herself survived Nakba. And when we had to do that, we demolished the house. We cut the olive tree that my grandfather planted. My aunt cried. And she did her best to save that tree. I don't blame tree. her. And then... Look, today, Israel is destroying probably the same house again. Uh, You know, it's it's not just like bricks, it's memories. I think this is a war on memory. We've seen how Israel destroyed Gaza's landmarks, historical landmarks. There are 200 archaeological sites that were targeted. The best places in Gaza, buildings, infrastructure, Libraries, archives. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a war on memory, on our memory as, you know, young Palestinians today, they want, they said like the old will die, the young will forget. Do you think this is the case though? Do I think that we will forget? Uh, I don't think we'll be able, even if somebody wanted to. Um, You know, I think one of it, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and then that's part of, you know, that, that that wish piece that I that I quoted is you know is this question of memories. It's not just items and pieces in a house, but I think you know I think the question of of we keep coming back to this question of where do we go from here and futures and so on. But for for Israel, right, for the occupying power, the goal has been always. Um, whether whether stated or not, and boy, have they stated some goals the last three months, but is you're constantly changing facts on the ground, right? Um, that term gets used in English a lot sort of in relation to Oslo, but for for me and I and for a lot of Arabic speakers, it, it relates more to this idea of 
right? You 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 just you you make it so that you have to deal ex- literally with the scenario in front of you, right? With those quote unquote facts on the ground, um, and what that means is, um, you know, in international law, we were talking about law earlier. In international law, they you know the the argument that's made by by human rights lawyers like Nora Harakat and Diana Butu and and these and these amazing uh, women, um, and has been put forward by you know, multiple uh, human rights organizations, is that Israel is trying to change the law, how we understand the law, how the law is interpreted, how the law is applied, and has been doing so for decades. Um, but when you change facts on the ground also, it, as has been done not only for the last 75 years, but even for the last three months, right? Um, Helena, you brought up the West Bank earlier, um, and and it is important uh, to also not leave that sort of um, aspect out and that location out. All of the um, arrests, thousands of arrests that have happened in the last three months, right? In my opinion, that's also them preparing for what they know is going to be an eventual prisoner exchange scenario, right? Because to be to be able to say we're going to release all these people. Well, you didn't even have all those people prior to three months ago, right? You're making it seem like you're giving up something that you never had to begin with. This is a, these are new prisoners. These are prisoners without charges. These are a bunch of people you've rounded up extrajudicially anyway, and now you're going to try to probably include them in some kind of prisoner exchange deal, as if you know, you're, you're giving anything up or, or releasing people that were, you know, priorly, I mean, we want them released, obviously, but that's, you know, you're changing what the negotiation is over. You're changing what the conversation is over. And that's the constant sort of point. Um, and, you know, we see that happening in very stark ways in Gaza, but it happens everywhere. It happens in every aspect, um, of, of every conversation. Uh, around around Palestine, and so I think p- part of our struggle always for those of us who are um, outside, for those of us who advocate for Palestine, who teach on on Palestine, who research Palestine, who do comparative work, whatever it may be, is on top of all the things that we are trying to hold um, together and hold in our in our research and in our talks and in our arguments. On top of that you're constantly also trying to hold all of the attempts um, at changing, constantly changing conversation and constantly changing the scenario. But the reality is it's the same scenario and every attempt is the same attempt uh, to accomplish the same goal, which is to remove Palestinians right, um, from Palestine and to continue to enact uh, not only an apartheid state, but an ethno-national state that is undemocratic um, and that is structured around the idea of constant genocide, of slow genocide, of elimination, um, beyond any moment of uh, immediate sort of confrontation or question of ceasefire. Noor, I think you're completely right to say that, I mean, dealing with this ongoing campaign of erasure of all of Palestinian presence on the land, I mean, it must be extremely 
difficult, not just intellectually, but also emotionally, uh, you know, and I just want to salute people like you and all the Palestinians in the diaspora and, and in Palestine who are dealing with this, you know, at both levels, um, which is an amazing thing. So in prior Israeli assaults on Gaza, they've always ended with a ceasefire. You know, if we're talking about Nine, the one in 2008, the one in 2014, the one in 2020, whatever, year after year after year. They've ended in a ceasefire with re so-called reconstruction aid coming from um, Europe and Japan and um, lots of aid sometimes coming from Arab countries going mm -hmm. through Israel, then Israeli shipping companies you know, take their percentage. Israeli customers right. takes their percentage, and it's kind of a profit center for for a lot of oh, Israeli of businesses. It's a war so economy. It's a constant <laughs> war economy. We talk about. I mean, people have been talking about war. You know, war economy issues in the last three months. Um, but Palestine is a perpetual war economy, which is something I you don't hear, and I wish like political economists would actually. Uh, take the time to really think about and do more yeah, work I, on. I, I've described it as a, a very grisly Keynesian system. You know, they, yeah. like they they destroy huge chunks of Gaza and then they rebuild it, and and it it like makes profit for them on both ends of of the uh, of the cycle. But this right. time, it's it has to be different. I think this time, surely, people in the international community cannot allow. Israel to control this process once again. I, I mean, mean, we hope. <laughs> we hope, certainly. I mean, you're, you're not, you're certainly not wrong. I mean, we hope certainly that that's the case. Um, of course, Israel hopes that the longer they draw this out, the more desperate uh, folks are for ceasefire, which is true and, and rightfully so, um, as far as, you know, people's feelings. Um, but what that what that means, what that will mean for what Hamas or uh, other negotiating parties will be willing to settle for. Uh, we don't know. I mean, we just, we don't know because there are so many unanswered questions. Um, we don't really know beyond what we're told what Hamas's military capacity is at this point. Um, how much, something as simple as how much ammunition they have left. We don't know that. And I mean, I'm, that's not anything that they're but, going but to share. But I do have to say, I mean, I've done a lot of strategic studies over the years. Mm -hmm. I've been very, very surprised by the resilience of the resistance in Gaza this time. And it's not just Hamas, it's all the resistance yes, movements. 100%. And, and, you know, the idea that they have actually held Israel to the longest war that Israel has ever been forced to fight. You know, when when Israel in, invaded Lebanon in 1982, it was about, I think, eight weeks until they they were able to, ex well, they were able to get the ceasefire and it took them another 18 years to get out of the country, thanks to Hezbollah. But, uh, you know, th their whole doctrine is built on a speedy and decisive victory, and and the resistance has been able to deny them that. So that al already is a fact. Yes, certainly. No, no. I mean, it's been. Um, I mean, from a strategic standpoint, from a from an observer standpoint, it has been uh, incredible to watch. Uh, and I don't mean that as a sort of 
you know, positive or negative value judgment. I mean that as in the literal meaning of the word of an, of incredible of, of one being awestruck and watching the, um, efficiency of the resistance, um, and the success of their, uh, of, of confrontation, um, successful confrontation. Um, that said, to my point of I, what that will mean in a, in a in a moment of negotiation for a ceasefire and how much they are able to push for um in regards to a day after scenario in regards to a an end of siege in regards to uh, reconstruction efforts uh the opening of rafah border all of these incredibly important points to palestinians who live in gaza um, we just don't know if I'm being honest, what that is going to look like or what is happening in some of these rooms. Um, and realistically speaking, uh, you know, we've already seen settlement maps of Gaza get leaked this week, right? We saw, I mean, in, in addition to those surreal uh ads for beachfront homes that came out about a month ago a month and a half ago this week we heard that i think it's january 28th there's a meeting in the israeli cabinet um in the planning uh planning division uh where they're going to actually meet and discuss maps that already exist to build settlements in gaza um so you know, as a geographer, you just have this moment where you're just, you think, here we go again, another colonial map being drawn. The map always exists. The map yeah. is always there before everything starts. It was, it was um, how, they, it's how they divided Iraq and how it looked into, into these sections. You know, everything. And, yeah. and you know, that, that is, that is sort of, um, a pro that is a process of, of colonial, uh, control is, is, is spatial imagination. Mm. Um, and I, you know, how that is going to play out. I mean, I think is that that is the part that is largely on the international community is this time, you know, before a hundred settlements, hundred, you know, hundreds of settlements exist the way that they do in the West bank is before the first shovel hits dirt, the international community has to say, no, it can, they have to be the ones that make sure that a day after scenario does not allow, right, all of these, um, all of these plans that Israeli government officials have been touting. From a from a different perspective, you could say that publishing these plans, holding these consultations at the government level, is all going to be on the docket at the uh, World Court. You know, yes. it's not just you know writing it down in notebooks. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it will but, but, but be on the docket. Elon Levy, the, that the guy who lies for a living, the Israeli spokesman, did say Gaza would be ruled by Gazans. So, so they 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 put it the official line is this kind of statement, whereas they want you to ignore what Smotrich and Ben Gavir and what. And I actually need to point out importantly, a friend of mine in Ramallah told me yesterday the amount of land they're stealing right now. Hand over fist in in the West Bank. Well, we're all like, naturally enough f focusing on on Gaza and what's happening. That that what's happening in the West Bank right now is ethnic cleansing as well. So um, that's absolutely that's taking place. And, and this is par for the par for the course, right? I mean, this is we we see this every time there is an attack on on Gaza, and there have been many in the last twenty years. Um, 
you know, there's always this sort of attempt, and we know this as Palestinians, as people, as and and as anyone who is who follows very closely, every attack on Gaza is a moment to try to pull something in the West Bank, right? It's a moment of distraction, um, and and so these are everything is inextricably sort of tied. Um, every effort uh, a part of the same plan again. You're absolutely right, Noor. Uh, I would like to go back a little bit. You mentioned, you know, the like comparative work. I, I mentioned that in, in, in the introduction, the comparative work you do. And I've been thinking recently about the idea of homelessness and houselessness and in, in Gaza, in Palestine in general, being a refugee from Gaza, but Gaza is also my home. I grew up there and it means a lot to me. I never feel homeless there. Um, maybe people are houseless now and it's very sad. And we, we, I've mm-hmm. heard similar things in Hawaii too. Mm-hmm. So if we compare Gaza and Hawaii Hawaii today and the idea and notion of houselessness and hom- homelessness, how would you reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you make a, you make a very important point, right? Which is that despite the amount of kind of refugeedom that exists in a place like Gaza or the amount of displacement uh, that exists uh, on the islands in Hawaii, um, a sense of home is not uh, gone ever uh, from people. Um, I'll tell a story. When my parents came to visit me while I was researching in, in Hawaii, um, a friend who who runs the detours in Hawaii, who who you know does these tours that are um, sort of non classic touristic uh, explanations of, of of places and so on, took my parents around um, and was giving you know historical uh, explanations. And my father, as a historian, uh, was was enjoying the conversations and so on. And after we had sort of had all of these conversations about colonial history, we, he took us to a, a particular beach. Um, and my dad uh, asked suddenly, you know, to take his shoes off and walk around on the beach. And so we did. Um, and he he gets this big smile on his face. Um, and he says it reminds him of Deir al-Balah, of Bahar Deir al-Balah, the beach in Deir al-Balah. And my mom and I died laughing because you had to have seen the scene of where we were. There was nothing on this beach that resembled Deir al-Balah. I mean, Yusuf, no, I mean, we were, we were like, oh, come on, old man. There is nothing resembling Deir al-Balah and this gorgeous beach with a green mountain behind it and, you know, um, and whatever. And my dad was, was not amused by my mom and I's amusement. Um, but it was, it was this, painful beautiful moment also of just silence right because what was connecting him to this place was so much more than a than a physical resemblance right of um of Deir al-Balah and you could just see a kind of uh of silence um as he stood there and sense and sense that uh, silence as something very difficult to sort of describe but it's something that we we all kind of recognize and it's something that I talked about a bit when we we did a uh, a fundraiser for for Maui uh, after the fires um earlier this last year um I think in in solidarity uh indigenous solidarity in particular 
and in comparative work as someone who is an indigenous scholar, um, not of Hawaii, but of of a, of a different community that, that you are researching in, in conversation with, with that space, um, you learn very quickly um, that some of the most telling and moving connections are those that you cannot vocalize. Um, and that's incredibly uh, obnoxious for a researcher, but incredibly um, moving as a human being. And, you know, I, I think it's also really powerful to be in those kind of solidarity, transnational solidarity spaces as well, because it reminds us that our living struggle in Palestine um, is, part, is also part of many living struggles um, around the world. And that is not something that is new. Certainly, the Palestinian movement has been tied to anti-colonial struggles um, for since its inception. Um, but it is something that is constantly renewed with every generation. Um, and I think the ways in which that gets renewed in every with every generation um, and with varying communities, um, right, is also reflective of those historical moments. So the PLO uh, being tied uh, to sort of pan-African efforts, um, to um, efforts for civil rights um, and black liberation in the U.S. in the 60s, uh, and moments that they were all combined uh, in, in each other's presence in places like Algeria. Today, we see that in, in different spaces. We see it um, in college campuses about land back movements in the United States. We see it with Black Lives Matter. Um, we see it with efforts against police brutality uh, all over um, Europe. And these efforts are not, as I mentioned, um, the first time, right, that any of these things are happening, but they are um, an entrenchment and a recommitment of our principles to justice and equity globally, um, not just within the borders of Palestine. And I think that that is incredibly important as, as we move forward, because a, a world in which Palestine is liberated um, and in which Palestinians liberate Palestine does not happen, as Mandela would say, without the liberation ac across, um, across boundaries, right, and across borders, um, far beyond, far beyond that, those of the Middle East. Thank you very much, uh, Noor, and I really enjoyed the conversation with you, and thank you for sharing personal stories of, of your dad. In, in fact, a friend of mine who grew up in a refugee camp in Gaza also told me a similar story where every time he goes to a lake or an ocean or a sea, he remembers Gaza because he grew up by the sea. Uh, so mm -hmm. waters remind him of, of Gaza and the Mediterranean and, you know, people who grew up in Gaza, including myself, we have a very uh, special relationship with the uh, sea because it's like probably the only place where we feel freedom mm -hmm. uh, under siege. Um, so thank you very much for sharing these uh, stories and for having uh, this uh, conversation with us. And uh, our motto, this is also a reminder to, to our listener in, in this podcast, is one world, one struggle. Um, 
And uh, one last note before we conclude this wonderful uh, conversation, uh, I would like to thank our uh, you know, donors and co-sponsors, the Hashim Sani Center for Palestinian Studies at the University of Malaya for supporting this podcast. And uh, I would like to thank my co-hosts, Helena Coben and uh, Tony Groves. Helena is the president of Just Word Educational. She's joining us from Washington, D.C., And Tony Groves is a producer with the Echo Chamber uh, podcast. He's joining us from uh, Dublin, uh, Ireland. And thank you very much, uh, Noor, again, for joining us from Los Angeles to, to talk about Palestine. So we have people from the East Coast and the West Coast today talking about Palestine. And Palestine is everywhere. As we said, one word, one struggle. Thank you very much. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all your work that you do.